Hello and welcome to Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, it was the event that claimed more lives in the city of Danbury, Connecticut than any other single natural disaster, the frigid night when two dams collapsed, causing unspeakable damage to people and property. My guest who will help recount this terrible event is Bridget Girton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. And now stay tuned for Catastrophe, when not one, but two dams gave way. It was the pride and joy of Danbury, the very first public works project ever built by the growing city. The hatting industry had started to really take off. There were 12 factories employing 2,000 workers, and more wanted to come in. Yes, the future looked bright, but it wouldn't be bright unless there was enough water to make all those hats. One of the more amazing statistics about hat making in those days was the amount of water needed to make just one hat, 50 gallons. It was part of the process for rendering beaver fur into felt by boiling it in water and mercury. And that simply couldn't be sustained by just drilling wells. The city would exhaust those underground aquifers way too quickly. So they knew they had to build reservoirs. And in all, the city would eventually build six such reservoirs, which continue to operate to this very day. The very first dam to be built was the Lower Cohanza Reservoir. It used the dependable Cohanza Brook as its primary water source. By building a large earthen dam, they could block the brook water and capture it into a reservoir for use as needed. Now, that reservoir was located three miles from the city's downtown in the hillier northern section of the city. Transport pipes made of iron, wood, and cement were buried underground to carry the water downhill into the city for further distribution to the hat factories. Altitude-wise, the reservoir location was significantly higher than the flatter downtown. Well, the year was 1860, and the city fathers were rightly proud of their first such public works achievements. The earthen dam was the length of a football field and 27 feet wide. Certainly, it would be steady and solid for decades to come. But the city needed even more water. It was going to have to sustain the burgeoning hatting industry by making more and more of these reservoirs eventually. And so they took their newfound reservoir building skills to build a second reservoir. This one was located two miles upstream of the first one, using the same Cohanza Brook as the primary water source. The second project was called the Upper Cohanza Reservoir. Now, while the lower Cohanza was extremely impressive with its capacity to hold 40 million gallons of water, the upper Cohanza would be even larger. It would hold 100 million gallons of water. The upper Cohanza was opened in 1865, the same year that the Civil War ended. To put into further context the impressive nature of this undertaking, Niagara Falls is 167 feet high. The difference in altitude between the upper Cohanza and the city's downtown was 250 feet, one and a half times as high as Niagara Falls. Well, for three years, the combined upper and lower Cohanza reservoirs worked perfectly. Then in September of 1868, a workman noticed a crack forming in the earthen dam of the upper Cohanza. It was decided the crack didn't need any repairs. 
After all, the dam was so thick and solid, what could happen from one tiny crack? But then fall turned to winter, and in those years, before climate change, temperatures dropped quite dramatically. Bridget Girton is the executive director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. She says it wasn't unusual for the Upper Cohansa to freeze over as it did that winter. What was unusual is that we were within such a such a cold snap that it didn't just freeze uh, the you know the upper couple of inches. It, it froze much further down. She says it was the physics behind ice freezing that caused a major problem. What happens, you know, when water freezes, water expands. And the expansion of the upper Cohanza was just enough to break through that seal. January 31st, 1869 was a Sunday. It was evening time in Danbury. No one is precisely sure of what time the dam breach began. Since it was Sunday, nobody was working in the factories. Churches had already emptied. The residents, for the most part, were inside their homes, and many had already, in fact, gone to sleep. What they didn't know was what was about to hit them. Bridget said it was the ice jam movement that began the cataclysmic series of events, like a series of dominoes toppling over one after another. All of that terrible snow and ice and mud and rocks and uh, muddy bottom water came rushing out of Upper Cohanza into Lower Cohanza and then from there down towards Main Street. For those familiar with the geography of Danbury, this mass of tens of millions of gallons of water, huge ice flows, large rocks, boulders, and even entire trees passed by what is today Exit 5 of Interstate 84. Cohansa Brook passes under the westbound exit to this day. Exit 5 leads to Main Street in Danbury, and it was the residents of Upper Main Street who were impacted first. Newspaper accounts from that day are quite graphic. Bridget says that the old Harper's Weekly magazine had a particularly detailed accounting of the events. It's vivid. You know, it, it's um, in, in the most sensational terms, they talk about the people who were swept away. Uh, the bodies that were found uh, frozen the next day in the upper reaches of trees. Bridget says that the magazine account really drives home the magnitude of what befell Danbury during that incident. It is very colorful and vivid language to describe what must have been an absolutely horrific night. She says that the newspaper articles used words that brought to life the many sensations that people experienced that evening, including what they heard. They talk about the sounds that went along with it. So it wasn't just uh, the, the screaming or the crying. It was the sounds of the ice and the, the absolute violence of the shearing of it and the crackle, which was the only sound that people heard rushing towards them. Personally, she has difficulty imagining the fact that this wall of water, trees, rocks, and mud barreled down on helpless individuals with no warning. I cannot fathom the violence of it. And it was quick, too, which was the other thing. It didn't, it didn't linger. When it was all over, the simply Herculean force of all the reservoir contents, along with the many objects the water picked up along the five-mile-long downhill torrent into the city, again one and a half times stronger than the force of Niagara Falls, had decimated a good portion of the city's downtown. 
The surge swept houses off their foundations, destroyed entire factories, washed away bridges, and even uprooted entire sections of the railroad track, leaving the city's train service inoperable. And that's just the property damage. As bad as it was, the hurricane of 1938 and the flood of 1955 actually caused far worse property damage in the city. What set this incident apart, though, as the worst in city history was the human toll. Eleven people were killed in the most violent of manners. A large number of other persons were also injured. A gentleman named Horace Purdy recorded in his journal the following day that while 11 were missing and presumed dead, only five bodies had been found and recovered. A woman named Fanny Humphreys and an unidentified female companion had been clinging to a tree on White Street as water rushed around them. They could be heard crying out for help. They lost their grip on the tree and were swept away to their deaths. Another woman's body was found a day later, frozen to a tree. The bodies of five children were found in ditches after the water receded. This was the language from Harper's Weekly and a quote. This immense and rushing volume of water came upon the town through the gorge above Flint's Dam, bringing with it huge masses of ice and lumber. With terrible velocity, it struck the houses on Main Street near the riverbank, instantly sweeping them from their foundations. Rushing down the flats along the north stream and east of Main Street, it swept all before it. The water seethed and roared fifteen feet above the bed of the river. The noise of wrecked houses mingled with the screams of drowning men, women, and children. What the water did not overwhelm was demolished by the rushing ice and timber. End quote. Within a week of the disaster, the city government had convened and started to take steps to get the municipality back on its collective feet started with a recognition of the loss. Danbury did make it right uh, with all of the people who lost, or as much as you could, uh, with the people who had lost family and livestock and businesses and homes. For example, the city paid for all funeral expenses. Bridget says word of the calamity traveled extensively. The absolute, um, you know, complete nightmare for, for everyone involved captured the imagination of the country. She says the incident sparked discussions far and wide about dam safety. Other communities had reservoirs and dams just like we did. And so this became, this started a conversation that was local and regional and a little bit national of, you know, could this happen to us? In fact, word of the breach started appearing in newspapers across the country. I believe we, um, we tracked an article to San Francisco. You know, they weren't huge. They weren't, you know, front page headlines. But it was a, hey, gosh, wow, think about this terrible thing that happened in Danbury, Connecticut. And, you know, maybe, maybe we should think a little bit about our, our infrastructure. Of course, that's just the same as what happens today when a bridge collapses somewhere. Local officials immediately focus their attention on their own bridge conditions. Well, the city of Danbury made an important decision at that first meeting after the flood. It decided to rebuild the upper and lower Cohanza reservoirs, essentially getting right back up in the horse's saddle. The city reached out to the state capital in Hartford for financial assistance, but it was critical to forge ahead in spite of the disaster because, at the time, there were no other reservoirs to support the still-growing hatting industry. The third reservoir in the city system wouldn't be built for another decade. Well, people always wonder, can it happen again? 
The Cohanza dams recently passed their latest state inspections without issue. As of the recording of this podcast in Connecticut, there are more than 4,000 dams. Twelve of them, however, are rated in poor condition with what is characterized as a high hazard of failure. Danbury has seen its share of major traumatic events over the years. Aside from the hurricane of 38 and the flood of 55, there was a siege by the British in 1777 where large sections of the downtown were burned during a Revolutionary War raid. Through it all, the city has shown considerable resilience. Bridget says that this hasn't gone unnoticed on the official city seal, which was created 20 years after the dam breach. The waving water and the tree on one portion of of the seal um, reference the dam disaster. But more to the point, Bridget says that at the very top of the seal is a phoenix, recognizing that no matter what it suffers through, Danbury always manages to bounce back and prosper. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guest for this episode, Bridget Gurton, Executive Director of the Danbury Museum and Historical Society. Please follow me at my main podcast website, amazingtalesct.podbean.com. Also, in between episodes, you can check out my Facebook page at Amazing Tales CT. That's where I place photos supplementing these podcasts. Plus, I'd love to hear from you, and you can always send me an idea for a story that you'd like me to look into. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path is a production of True North Associates, LLC. (laughs) 